Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us is Adam White. Adam writes often on legal and regulatory issues for the Weekly Standard, Wall Street Journal, other publication. He's a lawyer at Boyd and Gray and Associates working on constitutional and regulatory issues, which is why he's the perfect person to talk about the elite recent spate of Supreme Court rulings. And Adam, the word that jumps out at me is actually a number nine. Lots of nine O decisions. Well, we saw a couple of nines today, Michael. Uh, the Supreme Court decided two cases. Uh, each of them came out uh, unanimously, which is always kind of interesting to see at the end of a term. I, I, this seems unusually bipartisan or nonpartisan to me. Am I wrong? Well, you're basically right. Let me tell you, there are two cases today, one involving the Obama administration, one involving Massachusetts. Both cases were decided 9 nothing. At the end of the day, the only disagreements were, uh, it wasn't whether the government was doing something unconstitutional, it was just a disagreement over how unconstitutional it was. I want to uh, also pull in the ruling, recent ruling that they had on the EPA's limits as well. Is it uh, fair to say that President Obama and his legal approach has received a smackdown, a beatdown, a slap on the wrist, or is that even partisan, that this is really n no big deal when compared to the way other presidents have had policies greeted by the Supreme Court? Well, in the greenhouse gas case you're talking about, it was called Utility Air uh, Regulatory Group against the EPA. That one did split on the merits along familiar 5-4 lines. Uh, but I think that the majority issued a pretty strong wake-up call for the administration on how it's going to undertake its greenhouse gas regulations. What, what, do you, what kind of wake-up call? What, what did the uh, uh, administration do that went too far? Well, you might recall a few years ago, back in 2007, the Supreme Court told the Bush administration that greenhouse gases were pollutants for the purpose of the Clean Air Act's general definition. And so shortly thereafter, when the Obama administration took over, it started promulgating regulations. First, uh, greenhouse gas regulations for automobiles, and then it moved on to what are called stationary sources, basically power points, uh, power plants, or, uh, or or manufacturing. Right. And in that first round of regulations, there was a pretty uh, a pretty groundbreaking uh, landmark uh, framework under which power plants and manufacturers would have to get permits before constructing or modifying uh, their facilities. The problem is the way that the administration interpreted the statute. This would put burdens not just on really big power companies but actually everything emitting more than 100 or 250 tons of greenhouse gases. So basically small businesses, churches, schools, and that sort of thing. Now the administration tried to, they purported to try to solve this by saying, well, we'll tailor our enforcement of the statute, very much akin to their, their general uh, approach of waiving statutes. They said, we'll tailor the statute to only apply it for now to the biggest uh, emitters. Uh, and the Supreme Court rejected that approach. They said, no, the problem isn't how you tailor the statute, it's how you interpret it in the first place. And interpreting it to reach all of these small companies and businesses was simply at odds, manifestly at odds, with the basic point and structure of that part of the Clean Air Act. And that's one of the things that strikes me as a non-lawyer, and thank you, every, I pray every day, thank you, Lord, that I did not fall into the trap of law school. Um, but that you look at these rulings, that it seems pretty clear. If you look at the EPA regulation, the law Congress passed, the Clean Air Act, you go, that doesn't apply. You look at the Fourth Amendment when it comes to the cell phone case, and you go, that's clearly a, a violation. You can't search someone's personal records on their 
on their cell phone and you look at the uh, uh, the recess appointment you can't just say the Senate's in recess because you want them to be recess and in the past Adam I would have been very fearful that the Supreme Court would either rule the wrong way or that you would actually have people putting partisanship first and I think maybe what we've seen here are some examples of overreach that are so clear that even the most pro-Obama members of the court kind of agreed with me and said Michael you're right those are clearly on the wrong side of the Constitution and we have to act well, you're right. The actions that the administration was taking in these cases, uh, in the, the recent appointment case and the EPA case, they really were unprecedented, and they were met with firm resistance by the court, including bipartisan uh, unanimous court in the recent appointment case. What about the uh, cell phone case? Any surprise there that the court came down 9-0 against law enforcement and on behalf of privacy? Well, I, I have to admit, I wasn't following this case as much as the others when it was first coming up, so I don't know how much of a surprise it was. But reading the opinion when it came down, I was struck by the way the court grappled with the facts of the case with, with eyes wide open. Uh, usually when you're, if somebody's arrested, police officers have pretty broad authority to do a search right there without a warrant, um, primarily to make sure that they don't have a, the, the, the arrestee doesn't have a weapon or pose another threat to the officer, or to prevent office, the, uh, the arrestee from destroying evidence before the officers can get a warrant. Well what the court recognized is with a cell phone uh, it doesn't really pose either of those threats and furthermore the smartphone technology really is unprecedented as the court said in their opinion it's like you're walking around not just with a letter in your pocket but with every letter you've ever sent and every photo you've ever taken and all your phone book and your, your and everything else and they said this is just a massive amount of information and allowing the police to look at it right then on the spot without a warrant uh, generally is too far an invasion of privacy. Now, the court left open the possibility that maybe in extreme cases the, the police might have real just cause for searching a cell phone right there at the arrest without a warrant, but they're going to make that not the rule, but the exception to the rule. So, in other words, if you think that there's a imminent issue, the, you know, a, a child that's in danger somewhere and that phone could lead them to that child, you can fight that after the fact, but generally speaking, no, that information's not yours. That's right. The police, there will be some room for the police to exercise judgment in those, in those extreme cases, but that's, that's, those are going to be the exceptions. Now, speaking of extreme cases, I thought it was extremely uh, anti-civics class 7th grade for the president to say, I really want this uh, Senate to be in recess so I can appoint some members to the National Labor Relations Board. You know what? I've just decided they are in recess. Class, it's recess. And uh, it was what's interesting is we got a 9-0 uh, count, but my understanding is that some of the arguments that people got to left some real room open for future presidents to make similar decisions. Am I understanding that right? Well, that's right. The, the, the five-justice majority in that case did leave a couple doors open. Basically what happened is this. All nine justices agreed that the president can't just simply declare the Senate to be in recess uh, during what were called pro forma sessions and then just start appointing people uh, even though the Senate's right there, perfectly capable of voting on nominations. What happened in the decision, though, was Justice Breyer, a Clinton appointee, uh, he wrote on behalf of himself, Justice Kennedy, and the three other traditional liberals on the court. Uh, he said that he didn't draw real categorical lines. He just said, in this case, a three-day recess is really too short to, a uh, three-day adjournment is too short to be a recess. Anything less than 10 days is probably too short to be a recess. But what's important is that in this case, the Senate was capable of acting on these nominations, and they didn't. So, and, they, and the Senate said that they were uh, 
they were not in recess. And so therefore, in this case, the Senate was not in recess. But he left the door open for real fact, fact-based fact uh, arguments in the future that, no, in this case, the Senate really is in recess. Um, furthermore, he left a couple other doors open. He said that it's okay for the Senate to make recess appointments, not just in a recess that happens every two years between sessions of Congress, but also in shorter adjournments during a session of Congress. And he also said that it's okay for the president to use recess appointments to fill vacancies that were vacant before the recess happened, which was another point of contention in the case. But despite all that, in this case, the one thing we know for certain is that when President Obama appointed three members to the NLRB and one member to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, without the Senate's advice and consent, uh, those appointments were all unconstitutional. And now we'll see where the chips fall. And speaking of chips falling, there'll be some more chips falling, we think, on Monday with the ruling in the much-anticipated Hobby Lobby case, which involves religious liberty. Once again, as a non-lawyer, looking at the trajectory, particularly this uh, session of the Supreme Court, a lot of back-to-basics rulings, uh, am I wrong to say that if you're siding on the traditional view of the First Amendment religious freedom, you're feeling pretty good about what you've seen so far? Well, so far, you're, you're probably happy with what you've seen, but the Hobby Lobby case was pretty hotly contested, and it's a very tricky case. Um, I certainly hope that the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs in that case, but it's, it, we'll have to wait and see what happens on Monday. Do you think that this is a case where the politics of Obamacare, and this is a piece of the Obama policy, obviously the Obamacare policy in place, that that'll be the 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 you know one of the leading factors here, or is it a true legitimate concern about where your rights of your lib, you know of your religious practice and the rights of workers who would work for you conflict? Well, I think that conflict of involving fundamental religious rights is really at the center of the case. I wouldn't say the politics is is going to affect the case, but I would offer this: the Obama administration's record of very selectively waiving. Uh, parts of Obamacare, uh, really adjusting the way that the, the, the text of the statute says things are supposed to work, that, I think, is lurking in the background of the court's analysis, because here you're at, you see plaintiffs asking in good faith that their religious liberty be protected uh, in the face of this statute. The, government, the administration is saying no, even though at the same time they're granting waivers for all manner of Affordable Care Act provisions for all manner of, of, uh, of applicants. And I think that that tendency of this administration is going to probably undermine a lot of their credibility when they're saying to the court here, no, no, we have no choice but to to uh, to overrule the religious objections of these plaintiffs. So politics is through the back door possibly rearing its ugly head. That's why we love having you with us, Adam, to explain these things. Adam White often writes on legal and regulatory issues for the Weekly Standard, the Wall Street Journal, and others. He's a lawyer at Boyd & Grain Associates. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for up podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.